Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies. Matt, this is like our favorite podcast of the year. It is. You beat me to it. I know I say that every year, but uh, it, it really is. I just look forward to this all year long. It always coincides with the holidays and comes right after I've been, you know, just like mainlining great movies for the last couple weeks trying to catch up with stuff so i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm bet you i'm in a great mood and i'm highly caffeinated and ready to do this as am i uh, i think we need to make it clear that we know that these lists are arbitrary we know they hold no real weight in this world but it is it, it's fun to do and it's it's a good mental exercise to sit down in front of all the movies you've seen over the year feel out what meant what to you and I don't know about you, but over the last week, there's been a whole lot of tinkering, even up until the last few hours where I just sort of, the more I think about it, the more I write notes about it, like, okay, no, I actually, this movie deserves to be higher up on my list than, than, than something else. Is, is that the same for you, Matt? You know, honestly, my list has pretty much been the same for at Ooh. least at least the last two weeks, I'd say. No shit. And I've watched okay. a lot of movies in the last two weeks, so I think it's just a. I think it's just proof positive that uh, this year was. Uh, I mean, that 2018 was a great year for movies. I think everybody can agree on that, and that the ones that really, really found their way onto this list did so pretty darn early. Although I will say, I did not see the number one film on my list until about two weeks ago. Ooh, so interesting. My my latest addition was was a late viewing. Fuck. So it we was might, one of the last we, we movies might, I we saw. We might have the same goddamn <laughs> movie at the top of the list. I hate when that happens. Um, I would be okay, surprised, so, but it is possible. It's possible. But uh, just, just like looking through here, yeah, I mean, pretty much besides that, most of these movies are, you know, at least at least a month or two old. Like, there's not a whole lot of recent stuff on this list. I will say that. I have lots of honorable mentions of very recent films, but for the most part, mine is pretty well spread out over the course of the last 12 months. It's not all December movies or anything like that. Um, I want to go back to this year in movies. That's something that really becomes clear when you put together a list like this. And I sort of cross-checked with previous years. This was really hard to fill out, a, uh, to push things into the top 10. I mean, there were a good 25 movies that I sort of had to cull down. And looking at my 10 honorable mentions, like that could be a good top 10 list in any other year. Like this this year was really truly fantastic when you look at the like you know 25 30 really good movies in my estimation super stacked uh yeah i, I honestly my honorable mentions list it was harder to uh, narrow that down than my top 10 was to be perfectly honest i almost want to make a you know an addendum uh, a second tier honorable mention list because there's still so many other movies that i would love to talk about um so here's what we're going to do we're going to go through uh, we each have a list of 10 movies. Uh, I think you call it our, our list of shame. Movies that we did not get to somehow. And I actually feel really 
good about uh, the movies I got to this year. Sometimes it's it's harder for uh, for me up in Seattle to get to everything, but thankfully everything kind of came out early enough this year where that wasn't an issue. You know, saw a bunch of movies this year. So we're going to do the 10 of shame. We'll go through our own top 10 lists, our honorable mentions, and then we got to be a little bit negative. So we'll do our, our bottom five. And my bottom five ended up being a list of some pretty high-profile films, so not the greatest year for them. But um, yeah, I'm very happy with the work that I did this year. I hit uh, I hit 366 screenings about 48 hours ago, or about 72 hours ago, I guess. Right before the ball dropped on uh, New Year's Eve, I, I made it to 366 movies, and my goal was 365 for the year. Um, wow. Those are individual screenings, of course, not 366 different movies, and also not 366 2018 movies. I, I always probably need to make that clear. 99 of those were in were in theaters didn't make it to triple digits in theaters this year unfortunately and uh, i think i determined somewhere between 65 and 70 2018 movies that i logged on the year nice i'm not i'm not that good i think my final number was 56 2018 movies but you know not bad and you know looking at my bottom five i i thankfully we made a, a bit of a shift this year into just not bothering with a lot of the shitty movies and reviewing those movies and i think that's a good decision just for our for our collective psyche what do you think yeah i mean sometimes it's cathartic to go out and see a new transformers movie and then go home and kind of uh, dissect the hell out of it but i also appreciated you know my psyche appreciated not going into the negative as much this year spending a little more time with our spielberg series and with our afi series and celebrating those kinds of films and diversifying ourselves a little bit as mm-hmm. opposed to yeah just being those guys who just get on and you know sign on and um, kind of chime in about the same thing that 25 other podcasts on your podcast feed are talking about any given week during the summertime right and as uh preeminent content creators which we are certainly gotta love gotta love that evergreen content (laughs) gotta love it it's true yeah how many people are gonna care about going back and listening to a negative deadpool 2 review (laughs) years from now whereas uh listening to our thoughts on tootsie might uh you know still hold some interest for some people um all right do you want to do your list of uh your list of shame you know probably could put together a much longer list than this but these are the 10 that i feel are most were most egregiously missed by me in the year 2018 films that i expect i would have loved films that have shown up on a lot of critics top 10 lists that i really respect and then films that just i kept meaning to get to and just, you know the the year just slipped away from me so in in alphabetical order i've got border uh and, and a, a few of these are ones that i probably will get to before the oscars roll around so it's not like i'm turning my back on these films i just didn't get to them before putting together my top 10 list border capernaum Hale County this morning, this evening, Happy as Lazaro, which I have even less uh, excuse for, seeing as that's on Netflix right now, I believe. Madeline's Madeline, which is apparently is one of the most original films of 2018, and the people who are passionate about it are really passionate about it, so one of these days I need to figure out what all the fuss is about. Uh, Private Life, another Netflix film I just didn't get to. The Writer, which seemed to top a lot of critics' lists this last year. Three Identical Strangers, very popular um, documentary. Vox Lux, the somewhat controversial uh, Natalie Portman, Brady Corbett collaboration. And then uh, Zama, Lucretia Martel's most recent film, which I think actually may have technically come out in 2017 in certain parts of the world. But it's been popping up on a lot of American critics lists for 2018. And I have a lot of respect for her, and I just didn't get to it. Good segue. The last movie I watched from 2018 was Zama. Nice. Um, yeah, and it's uh, pretty good. My <laughs> 10, a couple of these are, are pretty notable uh, because I'm just kind of a scaredy cat. Uh, a Quiet Place and Hereditary, I, I keep hovering over them, and I keep just not watching them because I'm scared. Burning at the top of a lot of critics' lists, Certainly. although you didn't, uh, you didn't have great 
high praise for that film. Yeah, uh, I just maybe it? I'm just not smart enough for that movie. <laughs> it just went over my head. Uh, Wildlife, I haven't been able to see. Uh, Museo is a movie I'm really looking forward to, but there's it's it's not out anywhere. Can you ever forgive me? I missed. Uh, Won't you be my neighbor? Blaze, The Rider, and Minding the Gap. But I, I expect to see a lot of these before the Oscars, and especially the documentaries once they become more readily available. So that is my list of shame, Matt. Great year for documentaries. I'm sure at least one will pop up on either of our lists, and also a great year for foreign films those are going to be two of the most exciting categories at the oscars this year i think one benefit of this uh increased streaming culture that we have is the access to more foreign films and 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 quicker earlier in the year than than we have in times past which is which has been really nice i mean a lot of double-edged sword complications that i'm sure will come up organically in this conversation regarding what streaming services especially netflix really meant to like why 2018 we'll look back on 2018 as being such kind of a pivotal year especially if roma goes on to be a big oscar contender right even anecdotally i've talked to people over the last couple weeks uh where they started roma and they didn't finish it because they were in their homes and they were doing other stuff and it's a movie that requires your full attention the entire time but we'll get to that later certainly the first half of the year well let's break it into thirds i'd say maybe the first third of the year could maybe be defined by the black panther phenomenon the second 30 of the year call it the summertime can really be defined by the movie pass phenomenon and then the last third of the year i feel is defined by the the netflix controversy specifically as it pertains to roma and now potentially even bird box right yeah i mean wouldn't you love to see statistics to really see the numbers and how many more people have watched bird box than roma i just don't believe that number for bird box the 45 million views i cannot it does not register in my brain it cannot be true i've yet to meet anyone who claims to have liked bird box but i've heard i've talked to a lot more people who admit to having watched bird box than who have gotten around to watching roma yet oh absolutely that's true yes which is sobering it is sobering oh and also uh, you want to do what we did last year which is anytime we end up with something that uh any, any sort of crossover we just do a push and we wait to talk about it until we get to the highest point on either of our lists I love it. Let's do it. Wonderful. Start it off, Matt. Number 10 on my list of uh, 10 favorite films of 2018 is one you just couldn't work up your courage to go see, (laughs) and that is Ari Aster's Hereditary, Yeah. a movie I did not expect to like, a movie that has just continued to grow in esteem for me all year long. I want to say it came around in May or June of this year. Uh, Astonishing. First, uh, just completely astonished the first time I saw it was not at all the emotional response I had to it was not at all what I expected. It really is one of the greatest examples of this prestige horror moment we're having. Did all the things for me that I expected Luca Guadagnino's Suspiria was going to do. That's a movie that I that was completely lost on me. I was not into it at all. Totally forgettable. Whereas I haven't been able to stop thinking about Hereditary since I saw it. There's four incredible performances at the center of it the members of this family i think uh, millie shapiro i think is her name alex wolf very underrated gabriel byrne performance he gets kind of overshadowed by um wolf and tony collette but gabriel byrne is exceptional in this movie as he usually is and then yes the centerpiece is tony collette it looks like because of the subject matter or because the film came out too early whatever or because it's an incredibly crowded field uh, Tony Collette's going to get passed over for what might be the greatest performance of her career, one of the greatest performances of the year, um, which is a shame because she's amazing and she's terrifying. I'll never listen to um, Joni Mitchell's Both Sides Now 
And think of it oh, this no. uh, it's this did for both sides now what you know Goodfellas did for Layla. I'll okay. Just, I'll never not be able to think about this movie when I hear that song from now on. And this is exactly what I want from horror in that it's legitimately terrifying and it is like nightmare fuel of the highest order, but there's nothing about it that ever feels exploitive to me. And it doesn't feel trashy and it doesn't feel manipulative and it doesn't feel like it's trying to just motivate jump scares. It feels like a real master of the genre who has complete control of the material. And I felt very similar towards Ari Aster's work here as I did when I first saw Whiplash. Now, Whiplash is not Giselle's first film, but it is the first of his films that I saw. When the first time I watched Whiplash, I was like, I am literally like looking at the birth of a master right now. Like I'm looking at someone mm-hmm. who is in such complete control of this material. It's intimidating. And that's how Ari Aster's grasp of this this material, his, his preparation, which many podcasts where you can listen to interviews with him, where he goes deep into how much preparation he and his production designer and cinematographer did. I mean, he spent years prepping this thing before they ever got it off the ground. And it really shows. I mean, it's a very designed, a very curated film. It's a hard film to recommend to people just based on how disturbing it is and on the subject matter. But I've talked to a lot of people who felt the same way I did going into it, who also felt the same way I did coming out in that they're just like, this is not something they wanted to see. They didn't think they were going to be able to stomach it or handle it. And they're so glad that they watched it because it really is one of the more impressive films of the year. So I know, again, it's it's tough. I'm going to get to it. I I will. (laughs) I I even, I've, I've had the plot explained to me in detail just so I know what's going to happen. And I still... Haven't been able to pull the trigger. Part of that's also because my girlfriend doesn't want to see it either. So <laughs> if I'm going to see it, I'm probably going to see it alone, which is even worse. I'll probably just wake up in the morning and watch it one day when I have a full day of buffer behind me. Sure. So. Well, I, it's funny you mentioned that because I have also heard, I've actually heard critics admit to this. That they were like so terrified to see it that they went onto the Wikipedia page and read the entire synopsis <laughs> just so that they knew what, you know, what, what they were in for. Because the most terrifying, the most disturbing thing that happens in the movie happens like in the first act. Yeah. You know, so it's like you, it's not the kind of thing you're not like the exorcist or something where the craziest stuff is going to happen at the end. I mean, something big happens very early on and the movie that's as dark as the movie ever gets, crazily enough. Oh, so God. In that okay. regard, it is kind of fucking with audience expectation by like kind of hitting you when you least expect it. So I'm, I'm going to try to do the same thing you do every year uh, this time, which is see every single Oscar nominated movie in, nice. in some way shape or form yeah and i'm just wondering if this will get nominated for anything therefore requiring me to watch it that will be my way in unfortunately i don't think it has a snowball's chance at this point i just don't see tony collette being able to penetrate there's no technical awards that could get nominated i mean for? it deserves it it really honestly it deserves production design that's what i was thinking like production design maybe even i don't know about the sound editing or anything that usually goes to bigger budget stuff but it's all incredible and it all deserves it i just unfortunately i just don't think think it's part of the, it's going to be part of the conversation which is a shame Ari Aster's future films will absolutely I'm, I'm you know he will he will get a best director nomination sometime within the next decade I guarantee he's a, this is the the announcement of a really big talent all right Matt my number 10 is a documentary called free solo that's a push well, for sure that's a push all right we're gonna push that off and go to your number nine uh damsel very weird western that i saw pretty early in the year pretty small and pretty obscure and i couldn't even necessarily tell you where to go looking for it right now uh because it had this very kind of like modest rollout only you know it was only in theaters i think for a couple weeks nobody really cared or bothered with it but i hope that this is the kind of like quirky little genre exercise 
that finds its audience someday. It, it seems like this could become some sort of cult favorite directed by the Zellner brothers, starring, co-starring one of the Zellner brothers. At the center of it is this incredible, another incredible star turn from Robert Pattinson and then Mia Wasikowska, who really, it really becomes her film. It's, it's kind of a diptych in a lot of ways in that the first half kind of belongs to Pattinson and the second half kind of belongs to Wasikowska. And I, I don't want to give too much away because there is something of a pivot that the film makes right around its... Uh, halfway point. But, you know, obviously it's one of my favorite genres and I really get excited when interesting filmmakers, you know, risky filmmakers can find new avenues to explore in this genre. And in a year in which we were talking a lot about stories about women and about films that deal with, you know, masculine privilege or, you know, toxic masculinity, this I feel is kind of like quietly one of the most interesting social commentaries on toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, but again, to go too deeply into that would be to delve into spoilers. And this really is a film that I feel like almost it's almost like the less you know about it, the better. I knew absolutely nothing about it. I don't even think I'd seen a trailer when I first saw it. It got me giddily excited because it's so weird and so kind of absurd and so surprisingly funny, crazy outbursts of violence coupled with really interesting social commentary and commentary on the genre commentary on star power really in its own way and audience expectation it almost felt a little bit like a less cruel lanthimosy type film okay like, it, it, characters have a certain like affectation and a way of talking where it feels very mannered it, it's 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 a weird little movie but i don't mean to condescend to it by using either of those words it really is kind of a special little piece of work and it also has an unbelievable prologue with uh, that just needs to be seen to me. It's like the tone is set up in the first five minutes and the movie is so consistently sort of adherent to that uh, tonality throughout the entire thing that I just, yeah, I absolutely loved it. And it's it's all set in um, in Eastern Oregon. So in a lot of ways, it's kind of a, a little bit of a spiritual sequel to, I know, a movie that you're not crazy about, uh, Meek's Cutoff. Yeah. But it's it's far less austere. It's much more kind of like goofy and, and comedic than something like Meek's Cutoff, even though it's taking place in a lot of the same sort of uh, Eastern Oregonian desert. So it's the better of the two Oregon-based uh, Westerns this year is what you're saying. I think we'll talk about that movie later. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. It's really cool. It's a really cool. It's a really weird movie. I just I just really, it just, just thinking about it just makes me happy. So it's probably the most left-fieldy kind of obscure film that's going to pop up on my list. But it's basically, I mean, from the moment I saw it, you know, back in May or June, whatever it was, like, there's no fucking way that movie doesn't end up in my top 10 list. And looks like it just barely squeaked in there. Uh, it's a movie I'm not familiar with, but now it is on my radar. I'll check it out as soon as possible. Please do. My number nine is a movie that is well-trod territory for us. Uh, Mission Impossible Fallout. I think you know that that's a push. That's a push? <laughs> All right. You son of a bitch. How could it not be? As a matter of fact, I'm pretty disappointed with you that it ended up so low on your list, to be perfectly honest. Well, there's a lot of good goddamn movies this year, Matt. Fair it's enough. It's hard. I mean, honestly, looking at like my my, I mean, one through ten, one through twelve, it's all pretty mushy. It's all like there, there's a lot of uh, overlap there. So, what's your number uh, number eight? Shoplifters. All right, that's a push. Wonderful. Number eight for me is a little movie we mentioned earlier called Vice. Mm, interesting. Okay, let's hear it. I just saw it yesterday for the first time. Yeah. So this movie had. A very weird critical response. You know, Big Short was a huge deal, and everyone sort of fell in line. And you know, Best Picture nomination, and everything. And this is Adam McKay's follow up to that. And I, I and I think a lot of people didn't get it. And I initially didn't have this in my top ten, but in the in you know in the week and a half since I've seen it, I just keep 
thinking about it and keep uh, keep liking it more and more. At this point in our country, in our world, I'm, I don't really care what your politics are, but it's hard to argue that sort of neoconservatives or, or whatever have had a pretty drastic impact on, on our world and on our country. I just love how this movie sort of plainly shows how someone who can make those decisions can rise to power and in the mechanisms that allow them to acquire that power. You know, that's by playing sort of cynical, ruthless politics and going where the wind blows and not really have any sort of innate internal political compass. You know, it's about keeping power over all else and acquiring that power through through ruthlessness. So, you know, there's been some discussion about how this movie is uh, humanizes Cheney, and I, I've seen criticisms go both ways. that humanizes him too much and it plays him out to be this ruthless villain on the other side. It was necessary to, to humanize him. Um, because it makes his decisions and his rise to power and what he does with that power all the more sort of devastating with when everything uh, comes to a head. Power corrupts, and whatever shreds of, uh, of decency Cheney had, had, had left became a hindrance that he had to overcome, which he eventually did. I find this movie to be really funny, but not overly farcical. I think it's a pretty realistic retelling of, of what went down. I like Adam McKay's sort of stylistic flourishes, whether it's his sort of, I don't know, esoteric montages or sort of uh, fourth wall breaking stuff. Uh, I do enjoy the Jesse Plemons little through line. I think that's pretty darn clever without being too winking. It's an important part of our history. And, you know, Dick Cheney being sort of this seemingly boring guy took someone with with a real perspective on it to make this movie and make it entertaining enough and i think that's what adam mckay did let alone uh christian bale with uh, another predictably excellent performance and a really fun supporting cast and you know this movie is funny but it's also depressing and angering in a way and walking out of the theater i was pretty pissed off just kind of at the world at our country i think it's going to age pretty darn well and uh i i'm really happy with with what adam mckay has become and i i look forward to you know a few more decades of of him doing his thing if memory serves the big short actually topped your list in 2016 correct it did indeed yeah so obviously whatever he does sort of sort of gets me yeah i mean i literally saw this movie 24 hours ago so it's still really fresh in my mind and i'm still grappling with it yeah i found it to be pretty darn disturbing you know like i it's crazy to me that it is nominated in the comedy category for the upcoming golden globes because there's a certain amount of absurdity to it and it does feel like a natural progression of what mckay was getting at with the big short tonally right yeah yeah but boy i found it to be very unpleasant and that doesn't necessarily mean that i disliked the movie or that i thought it was bad it's that something about it really you know turned my stomach a little bit which i yeah, you know, yeah. i understand is part of the point. And I, and I think that's part of the sort of critical response to. It's a hard movie to have a to have a really precise reaction to. All that being said, I do find it to be a much less disciplined film than The Big Short. It's indicative of how these sort of unexpected hits usually get followed up, right? Like the fact that The Big Short was so great and that it turned out to be this big hit and won an Oscar. Like I think it surprised a lot of people that McKay was able to make a film like that and as a result he was given a lot of power for this follow-up. Yeah, yeah. So I think he was given an opportunity to like shoot a lot more, throw a lot more things at the wall, see what sticks. He's just able to do a much more ambitious project. And as a result, I feel like it's much more unwieldy than the big short. 
And as a result, it feels like sometimes it get it, it gets away from him. But again, this is all coming off of just a single viewing. I'll certainly revisit it. I think some of those stylistic flourishes do obscure the fact that this is a pretty straightforward biopic, which is maybe part of the point uh, of what Adam McKay is doing here. Is is you know maybe he didn't want it to be too standard issue. You know, taking it at a higher level, I think it is a really interesting and devastating portrait of of probably one of our greatest villains in in my opinion there's a scene very early on where young cheney's sitting he's like sitting at the internship orientation or whatever yeah and the guy leans over behind him and says hey you know can i go with the democrat because i identify as a democrat or whatever and cheney's like uh well that's good because i identify as a republican and there's something so matter of fact about it it's almost as if it could have gone either way. It was like it has it, the movie never really explores his ethical or philosophical predilection towards the conservative side or, or the Republican Party. It almost seems like this guy was just such a ruthless strategist that whatever he put his mind to, if he decided to be a Democrat, he could have been just as ruthless on that side. Right. Absolutely. In and a lot I, of ways, it's like House of Cards. House of Cards did this really brilliant thing where it chose to it chose to focus on a Democrat as opposed to a Republican because Republican would have been such an obvious villain. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, whereas this movie doesn't have a choice because Cheney obviously was a villain, but it's or, I'm sorry. Well, <laughs> Freudian slip. Cheney obviously was a Republican. It seems so matter of fact, the movie, he never he never has like a monologue about why he believes in the conservative side. Right. He never he never espouses his his beliefs in the Republican Party in so many words. He's, he's just good at, you know, being a company man. And I think that's on purpose. I think that's Ed McCabe just saying this is what a lot of powerful Republicans are. They just felt this was their clearest path to power, and it, they don't care how they get there. It's just it's just sort of matter of fact, and don't care what the policies are. I just want to make shit happen. And he certainly did that. Yep. Yeah, it's a crazy movie, and it'll be interesting to see if it. Can, it's just still too early. Like we don't know if this is going to be a hit, and we don't know if it's going to be too controversial to get nominated. I mean. At the moment, it has the most Golden Globe nominations. So depending what happens on Sunday, this could become another big short situation or it could just become too controversial and this could just become the Christian Bale show. Um, what are we up to now? Seven? You're number seven, I believe. Yeah. Bad Times at the El Royale. Ooh, Something shit. tells me that probably doesn't show up on yours. It's uh, I'll say it's an honorable mention. Just watched it again the other day, showed it to my parents. Uh, they were, you know, they were open to it. But, it, <laughs> you know, my mom was getting a little bit uh, turned off by the violence by the end because it does turn into a little bit of a bloodbath by the final moments. But uh, they appreciated the sort of narrative inventiveness of it. Yeah, it's just a movie, every, having seen it three, you know, three and a half-ish times by this point. I don't know, it just makes me so happy that this movie exists. And, uh, and I wish it had been more of a hit because I want more films like this. I think that despite the fact nobody really went to see this movie and it was just too long and too weird for people, I think it will eventually find its audience. And I think the people who may, you know, greenlight future Drew Goddard projects will be respectful of what an original voice he is. Yeah. You know, and the fact that even though he is making kind of genre exercises or, you know, deconstructions of genre as in this or Cabin in the Woods, Woods, excuse me, or even The Martian to a certain extent, he's so respectful toward and clearly so reverent towards the genre he's quote unquote deconstructing that it just doesn't feel as like cute and kind of winking and kind of smart alecky as some of Tarantino's most recent stuff, mm-hmm. even though he's treading you know somewhat similar ground there. I don't know. I just find his his respect 
and interest in character to be so kind of refreshing. The fact that basically in a cast full of very recognizable faces that it's really Cynthia Erivo who emerges as the the protagonist of the film and the most sympathetic character. And in a year where this wasn't a big hit and Widows never really found its audience, to me, she really is kind of like the breakout star of um, 2018 with all due respect to, you know, Lady Gaga. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I find her relationship with Jeff Bridges to be so fascinating and so textured. The way that the movie manages to deal with racism and religion and greed and abuse, uh, the opposite sex, abuse of power, abuse of politics, thoughts about the Vietnam War, murder, psychology, philosophy, the music industry. It, it just hits so many different things and seems to be so interested in so many different things. And yet it never feels scattered to me. It always feels very comprehensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just responded to how textured it was, how layered it was, how kind of reverent it was towards all these different sort of seemingly disparate things. You know, it's a period piece, and yet it still kind of feels timeless at the same time. And it's got this incredible kind of like central antagonist star turn from uh, Chris Hemsworth that just really anchors the third act of the movie. And he he just, he comes along at the perfect time to completely turn the movie on its head. A few things in the movies last year made me so happy as when Chris Hemsworth walks up shirted shirtless in the rain <laughs> and, uh, you know, approaches the hotel and just says, howdy. It's just, yeah. it's just such a beautiful cinematic moment. I really like this movie. Obviously, it's in my honorable mentions. Uh, I think my you mentioned earlier uh, when we talked about this the first time that uh, it really clicked even more so for you upon second viewing. I haven't watched it again since I saw it the first time. And I, I think my, my one criticism was I felt there was a bigger sort of payoff to the to the story coming and that never came for me. So I was always waiting for, I don't know, something extreme to happen. Everything you said, I think, rings true for me. And, you know, maybe upon multiple more viewings, this will rise up in my estimation. But yeah, uh, Chris Hemsworth, probably his best work. Uh, Cynthia Revo, it's crazy just the how different her two roles and her you know two big movies were this year, and she's I, I would say the star of of this one. And you know when you have a cast this good, it's it's, it's pretty fun just to to watch him play, and all the period stuff works works really well. And I fucking love Drew Goddard, and I hope uh, Hollywood keeps giving him money to make weird shit. Agreed. My number seven is a movie called Cold War. <laughs> yep, that's a push. That's a push. That's what I figured. All right. Keep, keep going. <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad you got it. You got a chance to see it. Number six for me, First Reformed. Uh, that's a push. Okay. This one is probably going to be pushed too. Number six for me, Roma. Definitely. What's your number five, sir? <laughs> one of these days we'll get around to talking about something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, number five for me is Mission Impossible Fallout. So let's talk about it. I mean, it's it's the best uh, ongoing action franchise that we have. It outdoes itself once again, you know, as propulsive as and nonstop as, as ever. There's never a down moment in this movie, and I don't think any set pieces fall flat. Just enough plot to keep you interested. Nothing too overly, you know, Byzantine or, 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 or twisty. It all sort of works out and makes sense. One of, if not the best third act of any Mission Impossible movie, and... Uh, you know, Christopher Quarry's figured this shit out. I hope he's on board for, for at least one more. It's kind of just a, a perfect action movie, you know? They don't rely... You, you don't see the CGI too much. All these practical effects and stunts are just fucking awesome. And Tom Cruise continues to bring it as he approaches 60 years old. It's just a fucking awesome action movie. It's exactly what I want. It's exactly what I could never really put into words when it came to trying to describe what I want from my, you know, mainstream studio-financed big-budget 
popcorn films. You know, if they never made another Star Wars movie, if they never made another Marvel movie, if they never made another Jurassic Park or Harry Potter or even a Fast and the Furious movie, I don't think I would really miss it. But to me, like, this is exactly what I want more of. Mm -hmm. It's like McCoy just cracked the code on exactly what I want out of this kind of movie. And nothing just filled me with the same kind of joy this year or even honestly in recent memory as as this movie did and i'm just so fucking proud of christopher mccrory he's he's just he's a guy i've been championing since the very beginning he won his oscar for the usual suspects and he was like what 25 or something 26 maybe yeah, that's crazy wunderkind uh he came to seattle when he directed his first film the way of the gun and uh he screened it at uh, seattle university and i went to go see it and i brought my usual suspect script with me and I fanboyed out to him afterwards, which is something I almost never do. And uh, and I handed him the script and he signed it. And I, as somebody who doesn't really collect memorabilia, that's like one of my most prized pieces of memorabilia. It's sitting in a box somewhere in a storage unit. He's just somebody who I was just on board with in the very beginning because to a 14-year-old aspiring cinephile, The Usual Suspects is the most incredible thing you've ever seen, right? Yeah. It's still a great movie. I still love that. I visit it all the time. But like, Talk about something that just like completely like I didn't know this was possible. I didn't know <laughs> cinematically you could do this. And with all the respect to Brian Singer, who's gone on to do other good things as well, some of them with McQuarrie, that was McQuarrie's movie because that movie lives and dies by the script. And it's just so interesting to see his trajectory. This is a very unexpected place for him to land uh, after everything that's happened to him. He makes this look so incredibly easy because I really think he is like, you know, kind of a genius, you know, kind of like a born screenwriting prodigy, whatever you want to call him. I just think he was born with with a preternatural ability to understand narrative. Much has been sort of written about, spoken about, podcasted about in terms of how much of this movie was kind of like thrown together on the fly, pardon the mm -hmm. term, and how they would sometimes just have to like go to some crazy obscure place in New Zealand and Macquarie would just have to kind of like throw together an action sequence based on <laughs> these factors, you know, like we got a helicopter and we've got a boulder and we've all, we, you know, we've got a truck and we've got uh, a, I don't know, plutonium. What do you know? We need to throw these things together into an action scene that would ordinarily be like the ingredients for a disastrous scattershot film but because Macquarie kind of gets this stuff understands it on the molecular level like kind of sees narrative the way Neo sees the matrix right like he just <laughs> understands the ends of it he just like he completely gets it and understands how he can kind of manipulate it that he's just he's kind of like transcended screenwriting in a lot of ways right I don't god how is this not number one on your list his ability to harness this stuff his ability to um, wrangle a film this big with this many moving parts and make it so coherent and stage some of the greatest action sequences in recent memory, maybe ever. It's just incredible. I just want to, I want to give him the credit he deserves. Probably my favorite movie moment of 2018, just in terms of how it filled me with that giddy, indescribable feeling of like pure cinema is in the first, you know, in like the prologue of this leading up to the, to the credit sequence where the movie just reminds us like, don't worry. We know exactly what we're doing. We know exactly yeah. the kind of movie we're making. We know what you expect from us. We won't let you down. That leading into just this bravura credit, like this is the exact same credit sequence as we've had through most of these films. And yet this time it kind of just felt like there was just a little more rocket fuel, right? It just felt yeah. a little, there's just something about that Lauren Balfe version of the Mission Impossible theme that just, it felt just a little heavier this time around. Like, we're going to just push this thing a little harder than usual. And the entire movie feels like that. It feels like all of these elements we've come to expect, we're just going a little bit bigger this time around. But don't worry, we can handle it. 
because we've cracked the code, right? I'm glad you brought that up. That first scene, I mean, you're absolutely right because it feels like it goes on a little too long and then you're like, okay, are, are they not going to do a credit sequence? Is that, are they getting a little more gritty now? And it's kind of they, like are, turning into angels and demons or something. Like It's like, whoa, okay, now we're blowing up the Vatican? Jesus Christ. So what you're saying is Wolf Blitzer was a big part of your favorite scene. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> All right. Who would I have expected it. that uh, back in uh, January of, the, of 2018? Yeah, I mean, I could gush for hours, and I have gushed for hours. I just, like, this is just, this is what I want from this kind of movie. And I just, it's one of those experiences where I feel like Chris McQuarrie is, you know, talking directly towards me. And it's it seems like a lot of people felt that way. And it's like Tom Cruise has just found a way to push the fact that he, you know, he knows he's the only person who is capable of certain things in terms of his star power, in terms of his physicality, where he's like, I know there's a lot of you who think I'm crazy. I know there's a lot of you who don't like my lifestyle. I know there's a lot of you who are confused, you know, who dislike me, dislike my politics, dislike my religious proclivities, yada, yada. But I'm the only one who can do this. And it's almost as if this year people were finally like, all right, we may not like him, but fuck, that's a real, <laughs> that's a movie star. <laughs> he is he is the only one of his kind. He, he exists, he is peerless in a lot of ways. And through sheer force of will, he has he even forced the haters to kind of concede in 2018. So that's your that was your number five, correct? Indeed. My number five is a movie called Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Ooh. Uh, I assume this is not a push, not on your list? Honorable mention. Honorable mention, okay. This movie, I've spent so much time uh, proselytizing and talking to people in the last few weeks about this movie. This is the most delightful surprise of the year by far. Uh, probably the most fun I've had in a theater this year. So on one hand, you have a really fun, really expertly told, smart, self-contained Spider-Man story, right? Multiple universes, timelines, could have been real messy, real confusing, but it's not. It's funny, uplifting it's got a great message voice cast is is uniformly just spectacular um you know from from chris pine to jake johnson uh you know nick cage john mulaney katherine hahn uh leah schreiber i mean it, it's it's wall-to-wall uh excellent actors but then you have the animation which is like holy fucking shit good like it's yeah. it's a new style it's absolutely beautiful I, I feel like it's the first comic book movie since since Ang Lee's uh, Hulk to try to mimic the actual visual style of, of comic books. Sure. And and the first to succeed <laughs> in doing it. You know, you, you, have, you have the comic panels, you got the words on the screen, you have the, the Spidey Sense animation. Everything is just, you know, enthralling and energetic and, and awesome. You also have this sort of multidimensional fracturing stuff that happens in the universe that they do throughout the movie that's... Really visually impressive and and jarring and cool. And did you see it in 3D, Matt? I'm embarrassed to say I have not seen it in 3D yet. It's funny. It's actually something I'm going to try and do tonight because uh, it's obviously not going to be around in theaters for too much long. Well, it'll probably stick around in theaters a little bit longer, but the 3D screenings are becoming less and less hard, to, even, in, even in L.A. So I'm going to really try to get to it tonight. But this movie is so unbelievably visually groundbreaking that I do feel like it's my responsibility to get out and see it that way because if ever there was a movie to completely justify mm-hmm. uh, 3D, I, I mean, watching this movie in a lot of ways felt like it felt visually groundbreaking the way the first Toy Story did. Yeah. Which I know is a big, big compliment to give it. And it also felt groundbreaking in the same way as uh, Speed Racer made me feel. Sure. Which is obviously a movie that has 
found its audience, you know, was not a hit and has found its audience later. But that movie, in terms of its the, the CG stuff, you know, ask anybody who knows what they're talking about when it comes to visual effects, and they will still concede whether they like the story or not. That movie is visually very important. Yeah, it's kind of a watershed movie, and this is that's what that's how this made me feel. Like I literally have never seen anything like this before. I, I don't know, you know, too much about the how technically they did it. I believe it was in, in, in CGI, computer animated, and then. There was a lot of hand-drawn stuff over that. And I think Sony's even trying to patent the style they used. So, I, you know, I, I'm a sucker for really good comic book movies. And this is, as you know, the best one of the year in a, movie, in a year with uh, some pretty darn good comic book movies. So, Friend of the podcast, uh, past and future guest Ryan Julio uh, calls this the greatest comic book film he's ever seen. And that's saying a lot considering that he's the biggest comic book fan I know. It feels... More true to comic book, actual comic book fan sensibilities than anything that's come before it. And uh, yeah, it's it's groundbreaking and it's funny and it's delightful and they don't overuse a lot of the sort of more funny arch characters. You know, Nick Cage is in here briefly and he's he's great in his role and John Mulaney as Spider-Ham could have been uh, a little too silly, but there's just enough of it to work and uh, yeah, never a dull moment in this movie and my favorite part is probably Jake Johnson. Yeah. And, Been a big fan of that guy for a long time, and it's <laughs> awesome to see him uh, get his work done here. Mahershala Ali, Brian yeah. Tyree Henry, Haley Steinfeld. Um, yeah, I mean, use the word unexpected. God, this is a movie that wasn't even on my radar. I, I didn't even think this movie was a real thing. I thought it was like... I thought it was, yeah, like one of those Batman movies that come, you know, animated movies that come out. Yeah, I, I right. thought nothing of it until the Rotten Tomatoes score was eye-popping, and then had to go see it, and was absolutely blown away and started it started winning critics awards i mean with all due respect to isle of dogs and uh, the incredibles 2 incredibles 2 or mirai you know very good animated films this last year but i mean this is so head and shoulders above every other animated film that came out in 2018 or that's come out in recent memory i'm sure it's gonna sound silly to people who haven't seen the film and it would have sounded silly to me before i watched it to be like Okay, wait a second. Spider-Man is going to win an Oscar for It is. I've had to explain so much. animated feature, yeah. but it's so it's in a it's on a completely different. It's it's the best uh, animated movie since what? Fantastic Mr. Fox or Wally, you know, in my sure. mind. Yeah. If this doesn't win the best animated picture Oscar, then I will know that the voters have not watched the movies. <laughs> well, luckily it's it's going to end up being a hit and that's going to help its um that's going to help its case a lot. Yeah, I mean and this is the best Spider-Man film with a bullet, right? I mean with all due respect to Spider-Man 2, I, I to me this is just head and shoulders above that. Yeah, it's it's the best by far and, you know, a top 5 comic movie ever made. Kudos to Sony Animation for pulling this out of their ass. And, and who who are the guys who take really bad ideas and just weave gold out of them? It's Lord and Miller, baby. Exactly. I mean, I should have known. Like when I, it, it's almost like the minute that I started scrolling through the IMDb page when I heard this was a huge hit. It's it, it's like my brain clicked a half second before I read the names. Lord is one of the screenwriters. I don't think Miller has a screenwriting credit on this, right? They both have producer credit. Is that what it is? I believe so. Yeah. And, okay. and th- there's a handful of other writers, and there's a handful of directors, and. Obviously, this is a huge collaborative effort. Just to think that, like a year ago, we would, you know, he would have said, "Okay, Lord Miller got a Star Wars movie coming out next year and an animated Spider-Man film. <laughs> Which one's <laughs> going to be better? Which one's going to be more important? Which one's going to be way, way better? Yeah. <laughs> Which one's going to potentially win Oscars? No, really, one of the unexpected um, pleasures of 2018. Uh, what are we up to? Number four? Yeah, Free Solo. I, I think I heard that this is getting re-released on IMAX within the next couple weeks, and I'm definitely going to make an effort to check it out there because if ever there was a movie that really 
you know, would clearly lend itself to seeing it on the biggest screen possible. Yeah, hopefully this is one of those movies that just keeps popping up on IMAX screens when there's like a dead period for IMAX films. Yeah. Like, this should be revisited. This should be on, you know, at the Pacific Science Center in Seattle yes, once a year. Yes. It's visually overwhelming. And the last 15 minutes of the movie are as exciting as any action film I've ever seen in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet it's not just a visual exercise. It's also a really, really interesting investigation of a true kind of misanthropic antihero, right? Yeah. I mean, the movie allows this guy to be pretty unlikable and pretty and, and, and sort of like hard to identify with. And he's he's actually very self-aware of how misanthropic, how much of a loner he really is and the way that he treats his girlfriend and the way that he treats his friends and the way that he treats his mother. Like he's he's a very complex character. And as a result, even more fascinating to watch. I mean, what he can do physically is obviously there's never been anybody like him who could do what he did. Clearly, nobody ever did what he was able to do. And like you said, an incredible outdoor adventure, nature documentary and an in-depth look at, you know, one of the world's greatest athletes to ever live, who turns out is a sociopath. And (laughs) thinking about him as as an athlete as a figure like the one the one guy i sort of you know compare him to is is someone like michael jordan right okay Who, who's just insane psychopathic competitiveness is sort of understood and we we get that the greatest athlete of all time was this was this weirdo who was just ruthless to his teammates to everyone around him however it's justified by his achievements and not only justified but it's it, it's clear that his craziness his 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 sociopathy is what allows him to be this great right, right. yeah it, it, it's showing what it takes to be a great climber and and that's something that is not usually seen in these type of documentaries that just the typically this movie would just be a showcase for the visuals and showing what this guy can do and not investigating who he is as a person right like these IMAX movies are usually like what 45 minutes long and just uh, just sh- just showing off the the scenery or whatever, and sort of the person itself will be sort of uh, on the back burner. But what Jimmy Chin, the director, does here—I mean, he makes a lot of decisions. I think those can be overlooked. Just being a part of the story, and 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 him being filmed as sort of a, a major consideration for what's going on is important. Uh, just the amount of photography they have with all these climbers being the cameramen, I think, is is really important. And understanding the actual geography of El Capitan and the route he has to take and the trouble points that he has to figure out how to get over when he's free soloing, I never knew what it took to be a great climber or, or what the uh, what separates the young know, the best and i actually understood the geography and what was going on and by the end of the movie you you feel like you know that <laughs> the path that he has to take and, and and that makes it all the more exciting and enthralling and fucking terrifying it it, it shows this person's journey and his psychological arc it sh- it teaches you how the like the the technical side of mountain climbing it gives you a really interesting kind of like romantic melodrama it has this self-aware kind of metatextual examination of a filmmaker's responsibility to their subject and the ethical dilemmas that come from a filmmaker who might be complicit in photographing his friend's death right yeah <laughs> Yeah. Which is something that, you know, I mean, you could look at something like Apocalypse Now as being a great example of something like that, right? But it is pretty specific to the documentary form in this regard. The, the tone is important here because they don't shy away from the fact that, from the danger and the fact that this guy might die on film. It's also not exploitive. Like, it's not overly 
done to the point like you can feel how authentic people's worries are but they never play it up to sort of a, a melodramatic pitch you go into a film like this whether you've done your research or not you kind of get the impression that there probably wouldn't they probably wouldn't have released this film if this guy had died doing this right it's not like grizzly man or something right or or, or at least if he had the audience would be well aware of it in advance you'd think right i mean it's been years since i've seen grizzly man but i think that is part of the narrative that we know from word from the word go that this guy did not survive his lifestyle his lifestyle decisions yeah or you know man on wire is something you can also compare this to which is one of the great documentaries of all time but this movie functions as an incredible nature documentary it functions as a really interesting character study but it also functions as probably the best action film of the year like it's just it's as exciting as you know mission impossible or first man or anything right yeah like it's an unbelievably white knuckled film uh despite the fact that you know you pretty much know that he's going to survive this thing it still manages to just draw out the kinds of reactions that only great action films can part of that feeling of tension and the the danger is the fact that you become you you get to know this guy to the point where you do feel like if he doesn't die on this run he will eventually die you think he'll just keep pushing himself you think he'll just keep going bigger and bigger until he finally does fall off a mountain someday or do you think that this was the defining event of his life like do you think this is the thing because he claims that el capitan is the greatest wall on the planet do you think eventually he'll discover another one or someday he you know he'll end up in you know we'll find a greater wall on mars or something that he's going to have to go and conquer is that is that the socio pathology you're talking about where like it's just like a drug these guys can't stop themselves from getting, from wanting to top this stuff that's the portrait of alex honnold that <laughs> we see in this movie right yeah, like yeah, it just doesn't, doesn't seem like he'll ever stop or he wants to stop and he thinks he's gonna i mean he's gonna keep pushing so i mean i think they mentioned early on in the movie that years ago el capitan was not considered even a possibility for free soloing right and yeah. the fact that he 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 did it, and he's he's got to keep looking for something else. I guarantee he'll be looking for something else. So well, I mean, this is one of the most impressive, I think, athletic achievements probably ever. Yeah, and it is captured so beautifully, and it is rendered in such elegant cinematic in such an elegant cinematic context that it's just like it's just you know form and content coming together in a very unprecedented way. With all due respect to Won't You Be My Neighbor, which is a very pleasant, very heartwarming film, uh, this is head and shoulders the best documentary I saw last year. Yeah, let's hope it uh, let's hope it wins. All right, that was your number four, correct? Indeed. All right, my number four uh, was a push. It's First Reformed. Oh yeah, Paul Schrader. What a batshit career that guy's had, huh? <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. You know, Ethan Hawke plays a a a pastor, a priest at a small sort of legacy historical church and gives probably the best performance of his career. Maybe the best performance of anyone this year. Yep. This is just a a thoughtful, incendiary, naughty little film. (laughs) Um, I mean, on one hand, it's a a great, in my mind, a great take on the current state of, you know, the evangelical church, megachurch phenomenon, you know, how the politics of it all, how they've become intertwined with, with evangelicalism, and a really fascinating, fascinating character study of, uh, you know, a man's deteriorating soul, yeah. the guilt that comes with it, and just sort of the introspection that someone with, with time on their hands and who has dealt with tragedy and the world crumbling around them. I forced my brother to watch this movie, and... Uh, you know, the text he sent me after watching was, man, now that's a fucking movie. You know, I mean, and, 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 yes. that, and that's kind of how you react to this thing. You know, it's a pretty taut uh, short film, and the ending 
is astonishing and comes at you fast and furious and, you know, punches you in the face, leaves you with a lot of thoughts. I, I fucking, you know, after watching this movie, I, I, I knew people had it uh, real high on some lists and I, I, I didn't know what to expect. And this is a movie that I keep, you know, my thoughts keep meandering back to time and time again. Um, and God bless Ethan Hawke. Had a great year, and uh, this movie is freaking awesome. And it's probably just a little too dark and odd to uh, you know to get a lot of awards consideration. But I I hope more people give this give this film a chance. I, I think it will age well, and I think it will will be something that is you know talked about decades to come. A lot of people have described it as being taxi driver in a parish. You know, that like that this yeah, priest yeah, yeah. is the, you know, if, if Travis Bickle was a priest or whatever, um, and that's valid. And this definitely feels very much in line with Paul Schrader's proclivities and his filmmaking interests. And, you know, his hero is is Robert Brisson. And this feels very much like a love letter to Brisson right down to the kind of style of the opening credits. What's so impressive about it is that it manages to be sort of like elliptical and open-ended without being frustrating in yeah. the final moments. You know, like there is something... It could have descended into a certain amount of alienating artsiness in those final moments where it feel that way. It feels like it's open to interpretation, but it doesn't feel unfinished. And it also sort of walks this really fine line where it manages to be about religion and politics, specifically uh, about climate change, without ever feeling preachy. Yeah. And the fact that a movie about uh, a priest <laughs> never feels preachy. Pretty enormous accomplishment right there, right? Or I guess he's a he's a reverend, right? He's not a priest. Is there a difference? I'm not I'm not sure. I think that my mom was explaining this to me the other day. Like, you know A priest is Catholic and this is not Catholic. So. It's, it's a Protestant thing, right? Or yeah, so Lutheran. I think pastor or, or reverend. Pastor, yeah. It is. Yeah. Either way, it, it, you know, he's obviously giving sermons for the whole film and yet the film never feels finger waggingly preachy. Um, and it doesn't it doesn't feel like Paul Schrader giving you his his treatise on climate change or religion necessarily. Yeah. And, and you know, like I said, the climate change never feels overly politicized. And it really taps into sort of a major theme just of, of the times, I feel like, which is deep existential angst. Yeah. Dread. And sort of and dread and helplessness. And, you know, showing that through, you know, the the character that's not supposed to have those things. Um, makes it all the more affecting. With all due respect to Bradley Cooper and Christian Bale, this should have been the slam dunk uh, best actor win of the right? Like, this should have been a foregone conclusion because Mm -hmm. it's just, it's everything, you know? Like, it is, it's the lifetime achievement, you know, whatever you want to call it for, for Ethan Hawke, and yet he's completely deserving of it in this context because it is the best work of his career and one of the best performances of the year. And it's just, I don't know, just the subject matter, the type of role, the prestige of it. Like, it, this should have been a slam dunk. The movie just came out so early, and it is so small, mm-hmm. and it is so kind of dark. So I just, I, I'm, I'll actually be surprised if he even gets nominated, even though I think that he yeah. should be a slam dunk winner. Yeah, it, it's it's not an easy role either, obviously. I mean, this could be a really dislikable unlikable character and he you know he still has a little heart in him and you can you can tell yeah and he, and he really he really toes the line here and uh, I, I again i don't think enough people are going to see it or respond happily to this movie that they're going to nominate him but hopefully at least he gets in there and i you know i, I think it's probably bradley cooper or christian bale unfortunately but we'll, they're the we'll showier get... roles i suppose but for sure um... But yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's a small movie, it's a quiet movie, it's a modest movie, but it's also one that just sneaks up on you and just absolutely transcends in the final moments. I love a good emotional ending that happens quickly. I think those are the most 
effective endings often. And uh, I think you're absolutely right. Like it, it, it doesn't feel open ended, but it does leave it open to interpretation. And you know, it gets in and gets out. And how about Cedric the Entertainer and Amanda Seyfried, huh? Dude, who, who expected I was, that? I was just talking about that. I really like good work by Sed. Like I, I would love to see him do more uh, dramatic work because he's really freaking good in this movie. Yeah, he has a very, he's got a very big, very juicy role. And he goes by his, you know, Cedric Berkowitz, you know, like whatever. I don't know. I don't know what his actual, I can't remember what his actual last name is, but he does, he does take the moment to not be Cedric the Entertainer for a change, which I appreciate it. And uh, Amanda Seyfried, who we all know is, is a very good actress, but she's never really had to, had cause to do something quite this heavy or complex before, right? Yeah, it's a pretty quiet, staid role. And uh, yeah, she nails it, hits the right tone. I don't know who the actor who plays her husband in the movie is, but he's he's really, really good as well. No, the movie, I, I saw it pretty late. I only saw it a couple weeks ago, and it had already been sort of built up for me. I mean, this, Roma, and Burning, probably the three critical consensus favorites of 2018. Mm-hmm. And so by the time I saw it, I was like, all right, movie, impress me, and it absolutely did. Like, all right, I get it. I get what all the fuss is about. Uh, what are we up to, number three? Yeah, yeah. Number three on my list? Let's talk Roma. Uh, we talked about it pretty recently, so uh, we probably don't need to go too far down the rabbit hole. But uh, have you watched it again since uh, we reviewed it a couple weeks back? No, I haven't. So I don't have a ton more to say. Okay. Again, just going back, it's a stunning achievement. Um, every shot is a work of art. The main character's story is heartbreaking and beautiful. This movie will age incredibly well over the years. Like I said, it's it's you know we don't have to get deep into the Netflix politics of it, but it's just so unfortunate that this is exactly not the kind of movie that is works for Netflix. You know, it's it's just so frustrating. It should be seen on the big screen. It should be seen with no interruptions. It's unfortunate. Like I said, I've I've talked to multiple people who started it and gave up because it, you know they weren't totally keyed in, which is uh. Yeah, which is a damn shame. I was rewatching Lincoln the other day in preparation for our upcoming uh, Spielberg episode, and there's a moment where Tommy Lee Jones's character has to soften, or he has to kind of like round off the edges of his political beliefs in order to push the amendment through. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. And like he 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 has to concede certain things that he doesn't actually technically believe because it's for the greater good, right? Yeah, and I've been thinking about that so much in this. It's it, it's it, I'm I'm constantly kind of wrestling with this. Like, do we concede that Netflix is the future and that this is this is the new normal in order to get a film like Roma out into the world? Mm-hmm. And uh, again, we've discussed it before. We will discuss it ad nauseum, I'm sure, over the next few years. You know, for better or for worse, the movie exists pretty much universally beloved. We don't know how much of a hit it is because of Netflix's uh, clandestine relationship with with statistics but the important thing is that audiences who have seen it are clearly embracing it critics have been embracing it you know since the festival circuit seems like most people are conceding that this is probably Quran's masterpiece and and to me it, it perfectly melds his two strengths which are like being a deeply deeply humanist filmmaker while also having an an audaciously experimentive technical acumen yeah right and he does he uses both of those that that two-pronged approach to go after this story that's all about you know that's about a very a relatively modest emotional trajectory and yet his technical approach never feels like gimmicky or distracting it always feels completely tied in thematically to the story he's trying to tell right absolutely it's it's uh, anathema to uh, to our guy Inuritu. 
<laughs> yeah, fair. Yeah, good point. I mean, his stuff is constantly distracting. Like mm-hmm. the the entirety of Birdman is is one big distracting affectation. Exactly. <laughs> For sure. I never thought of it that way, but you're exactly right. <laughs> um, and then their boy Del Toro, you know, like everything is so cute and quirky. And so everything is so surface mm-hmm. that I find, you know, I know you're a bigger Shape, Shape of Water guy than me. And that movie won Best Picture last year and he won an Oscar. But I've never been crazy about Del Toro or Inurito. I've liked individual films of theirs. But Quaran's a guy where he's never made a movie I didn't like. Yeah. And I'm just totally dialed in to his approach. And this, to me, just felt like, I don't know, just a beautiful, warm, fuzzy Quranian blanket that I just mm-hmm. wanted to wrap myself up in and never leave. It, it's uh, it's fantastic. I can't wait to watch again, see how it affects me. And I, I'm also looking forward to uh, watching it on my home television just to see how different that experience is and sort of understand what people who are watching on Netflix are, are seeing as well, how worse it, how much worse it plays on the home screen because it, it will play a lot worse, unfortunately. But if it gets more eyeballs on it, then then, then so be it. Uh, it it's, it's, it's so interesting because it's, you know, it's technically a a man making a film about a female protagonist, but it's also a man making a film about a certain place and a certain time because the movie is called Roma, not Cleo, right? Yeah. So it's a guy who's making a statement about his hometown and about the fact like it, it didn't even occur to me at the time when I started hearing about this movie he was making called Roma, which I knew was set in Mexico City, and I never bothered to really investigate that. Mm-hmm. And then after seeing it at the New York Film Festival, my sister and I saw it together and we were talking about it. And she's like, why is it called Roma? And I'm like, that's a really good question. I never even thought about why it's called yeah. Roma. And I did a little investigating in, in interviews he gave about it. He was comparing uh, Mexico City of the 1970s to be very much like Rome in mm-hmm. terms of its politics and in terms of how it was becoming this world power or whatever and and what has happened in that city over the last, you know, 35 or 40 years. And uh, it's weird that we're not really talking about, like, we, we, we get very fixated on the main character, Cleo Yulitz Aparicio, who is amazing. But I really the main character of the film is Mexico City, right? It's yeah. about the culture. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, the the characters are incredible. Uh, Cleo's incredible. It's a very, uh, you know, empathetic film. But I really feel like he's making statements about the, the city itself mm-hmm. and what the city meant to him and what it meant to him to grow up there in the 1970s. Again, he made a deal with the, the red streaming devil. <laughs> and... And it was, you know, if, if that was the only way to get this movie in its in its full, fully actualized form, then it was probably worth it. It's kind of sad, but if that was the only way this movie could exist, then I suppose it's worth it. Um, all right, that was your number three? Yes. All right, my number three is a movie we also talked about recently called The Favorite. Okay. That's a honorable mention of mine. Um, yeah, I've seen this twice now, and uh, it gets me every time. You know, our guy Yorgos uh, strikes such a unique tone. You know, playful and deadly serious at times, deeply political, but often farcical. Just kind of a diabolical piece of work here. Emma Stone, Rachel Weisz are incredible foils. Olivia Coleman is funny and sad and heartbreaking all at the same time. The great Nicholas Holt kind of steals every scene that he's in. Uh, that's one of that's legitimate. Characters. He's, it's crazy how good he is in this movie when I haven't given him a second thought. I mean, it almost feels like a little, like some sort of taunt on the movie's part to be like, hey, look, we're going to give you this movie with these three incredible female performances, <laughs> and yet there's going to be this male scene stealer right at the center of it. Not that he's more important or that he takes the movie, takes anything away from those three incredible women, but... I mean, God, talk a definition of scene stealer, right? Like I, I was listening to a podcast the other day the other day where these critics were saying it gets to the point where like 
him just showing up on screen and you start laughing before he even oh, yeah. says anything. No, I know? think we talked about it in our podcast. Yeah, like by, by the yeah by the second half of the movie, you're just you're so excited every time he pops up. Yes, I, I have heard from people sort of anecdotally that this movie has fallen flat with a lot of uh, parents, <laughs> a lot of older generation. They just don't know what to do with it. Yeah, and and the the ending is maybe problematic for some people, but I find it uh, super interesting, and uh, yeah, I think it kind of makes a a great point about rising to power and once you achieve what you meant to achieve, what now? So I I, I don't know. I, like I I've seen this movie like I said a couple times, and I just fucking love every second of it. It's just such a I don't know such an uh, alluring weird period piece, and I'm. Um, it's an outlier like I'm, I'm just glad it exists and hopefully this is uh just shows the, the growth of of yorgos as a international superstar filmmaker and i can't fucking wait to see what he does next ant-man and the wasp 3 probably right God, aquaman 2 a marvel yorgos lanthimos <laughs> movie is up there with uh, that's a great hypothetical it's it's up there with like uh if wes anderson had had done spider-man instead sure. of sam raimi right yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I love Yorgos. You know, The Lobster is one of my favorite comedies of the last 20 years. Um, I had a lot of respect for what he was doing. I love Dogtooth. I had a lot of respect for what he was doing with uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer, even though that movie, uh, you know, sort of rattled me to my core. I I, I really like this movie. I find it to be charming and very funny and very inventive and actually have quite a bit of heart to it. Um, It just feels less disciplined than some of it. It feels looser. And it feels weird, wackier in a lot of ways, and it feels less like he's ceding a little more control to the incredible screenplay, which he didn't write. So mm-hmm. as a result, it doesn't feel as much like a tight, disciplined Lanthimos joint. Mm-hmm. And as a result, that's why I think I respect it more than I love it. Yeah, I, I actually, actually kind of like that compared to some to his other movies. Like, I've I, heard I've heard that I mean you're not alone in that. A lot of people yeah. like the fact that these these writers come along and seem to temper him a little bit. Yeah, it's it's less cold, less clinical than his other movies which uh I think lends itself. Yeah, I I you know, I I think this is a movie that I'll rewatch uh, over and over again and uh God bless those two those three uh lead actresses. They're all fucking terrific. Indeed. Um I'm pulling for for Coleman myself. Yeah. Second time I'll say in this podcast, with all due respect to Lady Gaga <laughs> and Glenn Close for that matter, and Yulitza Aparicio, um, I'm pulling for Olivia Coleman. She's. You think if if we went back in time and played just those two snippets from this podcast, uh, what would we think? All due respect to Lady Gaga. What the <laughs> fuck kind of world are we living in? <laughs> well, there is a very specific movie that has not come up on either of our lists yet, and I actually kind of would be surprised if it does in the next two films. Um, my number two is First Man, ironically. All right. That is a honorable mention for me. Okay. This is a film that I feel is more respected than beloved. Mm-hmm. Um, it has popped up on very few top ten lists of the critics who I follow. And is just a movie that seemed to have come along. People sort of like nodded and said, you know, patted Damien Giselle on the head and said, all right, you didn't embarrass yourself after La La Land. There's <laughs> a lot of interesting things going on there. Uh, there's another kind of detached Gosling performance, which really pisses off people who <laughs> think that Gosling is is sort of like defined by that sort of approach. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who, who was just sort of espousing why she dislikes Ryan Gosling 
base she, she sort of considered first man to be the defining ryan gosling performance which reinforced all the things she dislikes about him has she seen the nice guys that's a good question because you're <laughs> right that's a little bit of an outlier i also am inclined to think this might be the defining ryan gosling performance but i'm a fan and i love his instincts and i love what he does and i love drive and i love blue valentine and i love lars and the real girl and i love la la land and i'm i'm in you know i'm a gosling guy and I think he and Chazelle really, really complement each other. This movie I found to be as moving as anything I saw uh, in 2018. And I keep going back to this David Ehrlich quote, who's not a critic I necessarily agree with that often. And he's someone who actually kind of annoys me a lot of the time. Maybe I should be a little more introspective about how much we have in common considering that he, he kind of pisses me off a lot, and yet he'll say things that are so, that seem so spot on to me that I really respond to. Like, I felt nothing in this movie until I felt everything, right? Yeah. And I feel that I have so much respect for Chazelle, and I, have, I give Chazelle the benefit of the doubt artistically. And I think that he does everything intentionally, and, then I, think, and I think that he and Gosling's instincts are razor sharp. And I watch a movie like Whiplash or this, or La La Land, and I just watch a filmmaker who is responding to his instincts, and to me, his instincts are right at every step of the journey. Watching this movie for the fourth time the other day (laughs) and getting so emotionally invested and becoming so sort of like wound up by Justin Hurwitz's score and caring so much about Neil Armstrong and his wife, despite the fact that they don't have that much screen time together. And, that, you know, an argument has been made that Claire Foy is not given enough to do in this movie. I, I, I disagree. I think the movie is very intentional about the fact that this is about Neil Armstrong. And yet, you know, it gives Claire Foy the ability to make a fully fleshed out character who has a lot of really good points. And the sort of like emotional trajectory of that relationship. I mean, the movie lands in an interaction between the two of them in which they don't say anything. Yeah. And that kind of defines their relationship, right? Like they are in love. They have a family together. They're best friends. And yet they kind of can't put these things into words. Armstrong just does not have the sort of emotional capacity to say what he's feeling. So he has to go to the fucking moon to be able to have this emotional <laughs> catharsis, right? Yeah. And that is the film's thesis, which may or may not be apocryphal bullshit, but tell you what whether it was josh singer or damien giselle came up with this i I hope they gave themselves a high five because like it's a perfect like cinematic kind of artifice right yeah yeah like it's a beautiful thing and it's beautifully realized here and i just i mean i i get choked up just thinking about him standing on the surface of the moon dropping something into the crater right yeah to the to justin hurwitz's beautifully beautiful theremin assisted swelling score (laughs) Which might be my favorite score of 2018. I, I I do love this movie. There were iterations on my list where it was on it. Part of that might be just recency bias because I only saw it once in the theater when it was out. You talk about Gosling's restraint uh, in his in his performance here, and I think that's a bit of the microcosm of this movie in general, and part of probably why it didn't resonate with audiences or critics uh, in the way we may have expected. Um, You know, I think we're used to space movies being more triumphant, more patriotic, more bombastic. And this uh, first man was not that at all. I think that's probably why 
this movie didn't get as much love as as you know you're giving it or or you know maybe we expected when we learned this was coming out you know i agree with you i i i love this movie i love gosling's performance i'm a gosling head just like you (laughs) space has never felt more realistic and rickety on film to me yeah um it's never felt more dangerous chazelle just showing off again why he's the wunderkind that we all believe in you know it's it's hard to follow up such a absolute beloved oscar-winning movie like la la land but uh this is a a great uh great movie to follow up with excited to see what he does next you know i i, I can't wait to to watch this again and, and show it off to people i don't know have, have, have you discussed this movie with a lot of other people have, have there been sort of wildly different reactions to it like i, I haven't talked to a lot of people who have actually seen this movie yeah. kind of landed with a thud which is crazy when, when you think about it like this this is a pretty expensive movie all things considered it has a big movie star at the center it has an incredible ensemble it's about this very you know accessible subject matter yeah um nobody went to go see this movie it was i wouldn't call it a flop but it certainly wasn't a hit and uh there was all the weird controversy about the american flag young white american filmmaker making a movie that kind of lionizes a american white male and 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 these are not especially sex sexy subjects nowadays just wrong time wrong place wrong subject matter but uh someday i hope people sort of rediscover this film because i think it's i think it's very special that flag controversy is such horseshit there's a goddamn flag in the movie it's right there but it was just it was just symptomatic of the fact that just like this movie landed at the wrong time it i think it came out the same weekend as a star is born it just wasn't what people were looking for you know in october whenever the hell it came out and uh it's it's crazy the way this all went down because i really think that because, I mean, there was a time where, like, okay, well, then that's, there's a slam dunk. Chazelle gets nominated for another Oscar. Gosling, obviously, this is going to be a Best Picture. Not, like, there was a Claire Foy. There was a time where, like, oh, yeah, that that's going to be part of the conversation. And I'd be shocked if this movie got any Oscar nominations at this point, right? Like, Hurwitz, I think, uh, yeah, has a chance. I don't think chance. it's going to get anything, yeah. Hurwitz has a chance. Maybe visual effects, maybe sound. It's, it's all going to be technical. I'm really pulling for Hurwitz at this point, though, because I think his score is incredible. And it was nominated for a Golden Globe. But there is, I mean, there's a pretty decent chance that this movie gets completely ignored when the nominations come out in a couple weeks. Damn shame. All right, my number two is Shoplifters. And uh, we recently discussed this at length, so we won't go too deep in it. You know, this is a heartwarming family drama from Japan about con artists, hucksters, kidnappers possible possible murderers (laughs) um but it's it's uh social undesirables yeah but it is it manages to have these characters and you see them perform these unsavory actions and yet it is heartwarming and uplifting nonetheless you know it's a movie about what uh what family means about our ability to sort of forge a community from from the scrap heaps it's about redemption, and it's a it's just a beautiful character study. Like I said, you know, you know six characters in and out by the time this movie's over. You understand their relationships with each other. I fucking I just loved every second of this movie, and I hope it gets all the love it deserves over the next couple of months. I hope it wins some some foreign film Oscars. I know you have you have a foreign film on the top of your list. <laughs> You've been doing the math. <laughs> I did the math, uh, and I think you like one of these better than others. But you know, what a year for for foreign films. You got this. You got Cold War, Roma, Burning. Uh, what am I forgetting here? I mean, it's for accessibility of, of foreign films. This is one of the best years we've had in a long time. I can't remember the last time that the foreign film uh, nominations came out where I'd seen all five, and I think there's a pretty darn good chance this is one of those years. And this one is is fantastic. I mean, it's number eight on my list, but I had contemplated putting it higher. 
at the risk of kind of reiterating what I said a couple of weeks ago, I, I just think this is one of the most straight up entertaining films of 2018. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's harsh and it's dark when it needs to be. It's heartwarming when it needs to be. It's sexy when it needs to be. It has two of the best, probably the two best performances by children in films in 2018. Definitely, yeah. You know, it, there's not, there's no fat on this thing. There's not a wasted shot. There's not a wasted relationship. There's not a wasted moment in the film's running time. It's never manipulative or saccharine or cloying, despite the subject matter. And yet it still manages to be compassionate throughout. And whereas, you know, I feel, I feel like this movie's constantly being compared to Burning because these were probably the two most acclaimed, and probably Cold War, but these were probably the two most acclaimed films to come out of Cannes this last year. Burning oftentimes feels very like cold and cynical shoplifter is just constantly kind of life affirming it's got so much I, heart it's it does and that it really surprised me that it won the palm d'Or because can has a tendency to go towards the quote-unquote artsier you know or the darker which would have been burning mm-hmm. and yet they you know kate blanchett's uh, jury awarded this film and this filmmaker is now making his first film in the english language with uh, the aforementioned ethan hawk i think it's called the truth comes out next year all right, I'm going to have to pick that up for the film. Like, I, know, I, know, I probably should have kept that to myself. <laughs> anyway, he, he's an exciting filmmaker, and this is really, I think this is a special little movie. And yeah, I'm, I'm excited to try and, when it does get nominated for the Foreign Film Oscar here in the next couple of weeks, hopefully that means the theatrical run will extend. And this is exactly the kind of film you want to recommend to people, right? Yeah, I've been recommending it uh, nonstop for the last month. Let's Let's hear your number one. I know what it is, but say it anyway. It's Cold War. Yeah. I mean, if you really like break this thing down, I'm embarrassed to say this is a this is a very cliche, very predictable, quintessential Matt Knutson movie. <laughs> you know, like this movie hits everything I love. Yeah. High contrast black and white, you know, beautiful people smoking cigarettes and making love, you know, an epic tragic romance that spans decades. Globe trotting and expansive Eastern European settings, you know, a love that burns so hot to, it's doomed from the start. This is high melodrama Matt Knutson stuff and this is a filmmaker whose last film definitely ended up on my top 10 of that year, Ida. Uh, I think mm-hmm. I may have ended up on both of our lists, actually. Yeah. And went on to win the Foreign Film Oscar. That's an incredible movie. Here's a guy who makes movies that are like kind of epic in scope, and yet he tends to be able to bring it in at under 90 minutes. This movie's 88 minutes long or something, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what I was going to say. I know it's a cliche quote, but, you know, it's the old Scorsese thing. Like, a, a film is life without all the boring parts. There's not a wasted second in this movie. It is yeah. only the important parts of these two people's relationship and lives. Yeah. I mean, I, I got nothing. To say. I mean, it's it, absolutely beautiful black and white i i regret that i didn't get to see this in the theater Mm. had to screen it at home which is unfortunate two lead performances that are just romantic and beautiful and sexy yeah sexiest Uh, film of 2018 oh for sure there are a couple just show-stopping musical pieces (laughs) in this movie and over decades 90 minutes long you know these kind of movies don't have to be three-hour epics this movie could have been given the subject matter but yeah the sort of restraint to, to make this uh, a real slim running time is absolutely incredible and noteworthy. Well, it reminded me so much of, you know, speaking of films with three plus hour running times, it honestly reminded me of Red's, Dr. Zhivago and The English Patient, sure. which are these epic romances that span, you know, three plus hours. And yet this movie gets just as much, you know, covers just as much thematic ground in half the time. Not that thriftiness should necessarily be a qualification for great films. And there is a time and a place for a nice epic epic running time. Here's a situation where I didn't feel like I was missing anything. 
No. You know, like this movie is kind of episodic in that it drops in on this relationship when it needs to deliver the important emotional information. It, it does so in a way where it's pretty easy for the audience to fill in the gaps. The character development occurs over these long periods of time, so it's it, those like, character development and plot aren't really segmented out. Yeah, like I said, the, the, there is every scene is is so meaningful and, and beautiful and ton of conflict even within the romance and i really appreciate how uh how flawed these characters are like how willing pavel is to show the warts of of these people and and, and yet it sort of makes the relationship even more beautiful and passionate couldn't agree more i mean they are extraordinarily flawed they are apparently based on pavel pavlikowski's parents which is interesting I, I was listening to a podcast i think it was uh i want to say it was sean fennessy's ringer podcast that i was listening to recently where he was interviewing pavel pavlikowski mm-hmm. where he was talking about the fact that i mean sean fennessy brought up is like this is a pretty sexy movie man this movie's about your parents like <laughs> how are you able to do that and he's like okay just I, I will say this that like if my parents were still alive i probably couldn't have made this type of film yeah. but he was very young when his parents died and as a result he's been able to kind of he, he holds them at a certain remove i think and as a result, he's able to sort of uh, represent them as almost these otherworldly characters from a different era. And they are kind of defined by this Cold War era, the era of the Berlin Wall, which is where the title comes from. Mm-hmm. And the idea of that very turbulent time in Eastern European history kind of becomes the defining characteristic of how turbulent their romance is, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's a really exciting filmmaker. I, I, I saw this in New York a couple weeks ago, and uh, he was there. He introduced the film, and he did a Q&A afterwards. He's a, he's a really interesting dude. He won the Best Director Award at Cannes this last summer. I think this and Ida, even though these he's made plenty of other films, really kind of announce him as one of the most interesting and exciting European filmmakers working today. As somebody who loves Polish cinema, one of my all-time favorite films is Andrzej Wajda's uh, Ashes and Diamonds. I want to keep using this movie as a way to compel people to go and check that movie out because it's probably one of my top 10 favorite films of all time. And I think it has a lot of sort of thematic crossover with this film. The two main characters in this remind me a lot of Bigniew Chabolski and Iwa Karaszewska's characters in that film Mm -hmm. and there are high contrast black and white images in this movie that directly reference um, ashes and diamonds i think part of my emotional response to it was that it reminded me so much of one of my favorite films but yeah i mean honestly dude up until a couple weeks ago i was like god 2018 was such a great year for movies i know the films that are going to be on my list and yet i couldn't find a number one Mm -hmm. i was like i love first man i love roma i love free solo but i can't quite reconcile the idea of them being number one of 2018 i was like what am I gonna have what am I gonna do I'm just gonna have to like something's gonna have to just fall in there by default right yeah and as much as I appreciate first man I just had a hard time convincing myself that first man belonged in the number one spot and then I saw cold war and it just everything clicked you know nice. like when you have those epiphanal moments you're just like yep there it is that's that's the best thing I've seen all year well I had a very similar experience with my number one didn't appear on your list do you have any any guesses crazy rich Asian no <laughs> Although that is a uh, honorable mention for me, so that's good. Uh, I'm wondering, no. is is it if Beale Street could talk? It is. It okay. Is. I walked out of this movie just 
awestruck. I think it's an important movie. Things should be required viewing for all Americans. Take away the just beautiful love story in this movie. It's and I didn't expect this. It's it's a rumination on kind of the the sins of our country, our society, the banality of of racism and how it's ruined countless lives. How it's crushed so many dreams, punctured the hope of of good people for for hundreds of years. It does all of that in a way that doesn't bash you over the head with with those themes. You know, sort of a classic. Uh, classic show don't tell there is an opportunity to sort of get bogged down in court proceedings or the politics of it or the actual sort of actions and the arrests of of what you know what what happened in this movie but what's nodded to like they don't they don't show some key parts of this movie and i think it 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 helps uh keep this movie sort of beautiful and, and delicate it could have been a very negative depressing movie it's just full of these hopeful loving optimistic characters and that makes what happens in this movie all the more heartbreaking like I said, it's 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 a, just a delicately beautiful film from end to end. Barry Jenkins shoots it wonderfully. He's sort of notable now for those you know starstruck close-ups i guess you could say the two leads are fantastic the story structure is a little fractured but never in a showy overly clever way i think it just gives you all the information you need and all the character stuff you need and you know there are just so many standout scenes in this movie uh whether it's the first pregnancy announcement the sex scene the stuff in puerto rico with regina king i don't know i just walked out thinking man this is a this is a perfect movie this is extremely affecting i love all the choices barry jenkins makes throughout you know it's one of those rare movies that's both really uplifting and heartwarming and depressing and makes you angry. Love this fucking movie. Yeah, I liked it a lot. I've only seen it once, probably my second favorite score of the year after Justin Hurwitz's score for First Man. I mean, it really is the the soundtrack I've been listening to on a loop for at least the last two weeks. Yeah. Because it's incredibly romantic. Nicholas Bertel, um, who, of course, wrote the incredible score for Moonlight. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a movie of moments. I, I've continued to replay in my head since since first seeing it. Mm-hmm. I guess I didn't find all those moments to coalesce the same way that they had in something like Moonlight. Sure. But it is definitely a movie that afterwards I was like, there is so much going on there. There's so much I was impressed by. That movie really deserves another watch, even though my first reaction wasn't to be as bowled over as some critics have and as clearly you were. Yeah. I was just like, that movie meant enough to me that I know I'm going to have to revisit it in the theater very soon because there's there's clearly a lot there. Yeah. It, it's strange how people are reacting to it, you know? Like, people seem to be sort of respectful towards it, but it's yeah. not quite achieving the same level of um, reverence as, as, something like, as Moonlight did almost immediately. Yeah. So I'm not sure exactly what accounts for that. I mean, do you think it's just because it's a, I don't know, it's even weird to call it a smaller story. Moonlight's a pretty small story too, all things considered. Yeah. I don't know. I, I can't quite figure it out. I think Moonlight's a little more stylistic. Okay. I, I guess. I, maybe that accounts for it. Obviously the subject matter is important. But, you know, I went in expecting sort of just this romantic period piece tone poem, and I wasn't expecting to get sort of the, the social themes that ended up being a focal point of the movie. It all just coalesced and and worked for me you know it it didn't overplay its hand and i just thought you know it, it worked on both of those levels so exquisitely and the the cast was beautiful and i don't know it, it, i just i just connected with the movie and i i want everyone to see it i you know i think barry jenkins is one of the most talented guys out there pretty fucking good one-two punch to really begin your hollywood career especially because apparently he wrote this basically immediately after uh, moonlight like the the story is that he went over to um i think he went over to brussels 
like his producing partner had said, you know, you need to clear your head. You need to get out of the country. You need to go sit in a hotel, some, you know, go sit in a park somewhere and just bang out your next project. Wouldn't it be nice to be in a position where you have, you have enough fi- financing that, that you could be sent overseas to go write your next masterpiece? That sounds like a dream come true. Yes, go, um, yes, go, go rent a nice apartment in Paris. Exactly. And take your time and... <laughs> oh, yeah, that's the dream. Um, anyway, long story short, I, I was listening to the uh, DG, the DGA does these great podcasts where they have a great director interview a director who just released a film. A couple weeks ago, they had uh, Paul Thomas Anderson interviewing Barry Jenkins talking about. Uh, oh, hell yeah. I need to listen podcast. to that. Yeah. yeah, check it out. I think it's just the I think it's just called the DGA podcast. This week, it was Christopher Nolan interviewing Karen Kusama about Destroyer. Cool. Which is on my list of shame. Anyway, long story short, he went over to Europe and basically wrote Moonlight and If Beale Street Could Talk back to back. So that's how he's managed to do this incredible one-two punch just like this. And, and, I mean, almost the same way that apparently uh, Damien Chazelle was prepping First Man when he got sort of like the green light to do La La Land. Like, yeah. I think the plan was to do La La Land or to do First Man first. And then La La Land just for whatever reason came together faster. So these two guys, it is kind of funny that even though they won't be competing against each other the same way they were in 2016. They're on the same track. Their trajectories, yeah. I mean, they're not very far apart in age. And, you know, they both won Oscars and, and you know, on Oscar night in 2016, obviously in very dramatic fashion. <laughs> yep. But yes, Barry Jenkins is a very exciting, very exciting filmmaker. And I'm very much looking forward to seeing what he does next. I just wasn't, for some reason, I couldn't quite connect emotionally with this the way that I think a lot of people have. I'm impressed with all these component pieces. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it, it's it's not quite all coming together for me the way that Moonlight had. But again, immediately like imme- immediately after walking out of like, I need to see that again as soon as possible. Yeah, and I think it's one of those movies that kind of it, it's it depends on your mood going in. Like you have to be in the right right headspace for it and open to to everything. I saw it over the holidays in a very sort of lazy week between you know Christmas and New Year's, and it was just the right time and place, and absolutely loved it. It's too bad that this is such an incredible stacked year for Best Actress because I really think that the Kiki Lane performance is just one of those breakout roles yes. where we should really be taught because this this is for all intents and purposes her movie mm-hmm. you know like she with all due respect to Stephen James who's great he's behind bars for most of the film and it's too bad that we're not talking about her as this incredible breakout who should be competing against you know <laughs> The aforementioned Lady Gaga. Let's let's do our honorable mentions. Okay. Uh, you want to go ahead? Yes, my honorable mentions in uh, alphabetical order. Uh, blockers. Mm-hmm. Great comedy that nobody has seen, that everybody should see, which made me laugh harder than anything else I saw in 2018. I saw it, loved it. You did? Okay, great. None great, of my great. honorable mentions, but it, it, was, it was in consideration. Good, good, good. I'm glad you liked it. Crazy Rich Asians, which I thought was wonderful, which I was very skeptical about. Because it was already phenomenon by the time I saw it, I think it lives up to uh, to everything you know. Everybody said it was. It's just a wonderful, wonderful romantic comedy. I don't know if we necessarily need two more sequels, but <laughs> but I <laughs> I understand why it was such a big hit. I understand why they're talking about making the sequels, and I understand why it became such a phenomenon. I'm I'm glad that it exists. I hope it gets nominated for Best Picture because it deserves to. Eighth Grade, which is a movie that just barely missed my top ten. 
movie I love. A lot of uncomfortable moments, a lot of sort of sublime moments, a great performance by Josh Hamilton, who I think is just an underrated actor who has flown under the radar for many years, who gets to have kind of like the big emotional monologue at the end of this, which just makes me choke up thinking about it. Uh, The aforementioned The Favorite, the aforementioned If Beale Street Could Talk, Isle of Dogs, which I think is just a wonderful, beautiful little Wes Anderson oddity that unfortunately got embroiled in a lot of weird controversy. Mm-hmm. but I think stands up really nicely next to uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox. Uh, Mining the Gap, wonderful documentary that I just saw recently that is everything that you heard it is. Go see it. It's on Hulu right now. It's an amazing movie. It's a very heavy movie, so don't make sure you're emotionally prepared for okay. it. It's, it's one of the darkest, gut-wrenching films I saw God. in All 2018. Right. It's on my so list of shame, so that's good to know. Be prepared. It's 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 going to turn you into knots, but it's it's worth the watch. Old Man and the Gun, just rewatched. Uh, with my parents over the weekend. Love it. Great. Fun. Whimsical. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. It's great. And then uh, Widows, which yeah. is just a movie that I thought was a hell of a lot of fun and uh, had both modest aspirations and also probably unrealistically high aspirations kind of simultaneously. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> was trying to be all things to all people and as a result couldn't be everything at once. But it's just a movie I've, I've uh, you know, I, I just keep thinking about and I'm just glad that it exists and I can't wait to watch it again. My honorable mentions, I have a Stars Born on here. Sure. With this avalanche of really great films coming out at the end of the year, if Stars Born has been a little bit on the back burner, maybe even encountered a little bit of backlash, it seems. That's kind of mainly anecdotal. So I'm curious to see how that'll all play out come award season. The aforementioned and Crazy Rich Asians. I was like you. I was very skeptical. Uh, it absolutely delighted me. Avengers Infinity War. Now, Matt, <laughs> this is a movie that uh, keeps growing in my estimation. Almost made it on my top 10 list. I just think it's an incredible achievement given all the movies that came before it. I think it's you know the second best comic book movie of the year. Uh, all due respect to Black Panther and Ant-Man and the Wasp. And no due respect to Aquaman. Um, I have Widows. I totally agree. Kind of close to being a masterpiece, but just tried to do a little too much, probably. A movie called Leave No Trace, which I just saw recently, which I really... Just watched it last night. I liked it a lot. Just yeah. barely missed my uh, honorable mentions. Bad Times of the El Royale, which we've talked about. The Old Man and the Gun. Like you, I love the movie. If it is Redford's last film, then that's a hell of a way to go out. The aforementioned Eighth Grade. So many cringy moments in that movie that it's kind of hard to watch but also a lot of uplifting and powerful uh scenes throughout a movie called thoroughbreds have you seen that yeah i liked it i'm not sure if i loved it i i really like just how weird and cynical and dark that movie is uh had a lot of fun watching it and then the aforementioned uh first man i think we have a quite a bit of crossover we'll have to do the final tally but it's probably around what of of the 20 films we probably have like 12 similar movies kind of why we're here right Uh, we do tend to have a little bit (laughs) a little bit of Crossover Although I will say my number one wasn't on your top ten list, and your number two wasn't on my top ten list, so that's good. Yes, yeah. that's that's probably a little bit of a, a little more of a deviation than usual. I was very proud of myself for being able to divine your uh, number one. There you go. Considering they didn't pop up on mine, I just I immediately I just started crunching the numbers. I started looking at my list. I started thinking what's what's missing from this conversation. Ah, I know what we're missing. You actually paused the podcast, and I waited for an hour while you crunched the numbers. <laughs>
All right. Well, at the risk of being negative, do you want to just briefly talk about the things you were underwhelmed with in 2018? Uh, my bottom five does not include Aquaman, which I did just see and is uh, sort of delightfully st- stupid. It's just a bit, one of the stupidest movies you'll ever see, but kind of fun. Okay. I was about to say, it sounded like you hated it. And no. I, I, I don't think I hate it, but I'm also not totally sold on it being an unexpected masterpiece like a lot of people seem to be selling it. At. It's certainly not that, but I definitely enjoyed my time in the theater. I'll just say that. Um, okay, my, my bottom five. Uh, Fantastic Beasts 2, The Crimes <laughs> of Grindelwald. I fucking hated that movie so much. We talked about it earlier. Sure. Tomb Raider, which is just such a boring action movie. It's just so middle of the road. Nothing special about it. Uh, nothing great. The Sisters Brothers, which yeah. we've talked about. Just an ugly, bad movie. Great first scene, but everything else is bad. Great first scene, and oddly has like popped up on a couple of, yeah. of top ten lists for you know from critics that I respect. So, like, some people are getting something out of that film that you and I clearly didn't. <laughs> yeah. Ready Player One. Oh, which, interesting. Yeah, I really didn't like that movie that at all. That breaks my heart a little bit. Well, here's the thing, Matt. Looking at my list of movies, like, I didn't really see a ton of bad movies. Sure. So that that's part of why. It was kind of hard to fill out this bottom five list. In two more Spielberg episodes, we're going to we're gonna get back into Ready Player One again, which I'm kind of excited about. <laughs> I know. You're going to have to rewatch it. I'm kind of excited to rewatch, see if I've if I've softened. And then Deadpool 2, which gets on here because I think it's just so freaking overrated, and I don't find it all that funny, and it's just too much Ryan Reynolds being er, Ryan Reynolds throughout. So that's my bottom five. Perfect segue, because uh, in alphabetical order, the first on my bottom five is Deadpool 2. Cool. Which is a movie I absolutely hated. Um, <laughs> hated it so much. Hate everything it stands for. Hate everything it represents. Hate everything it was trying to do. Hate, hate, hate. And I'm not a hateful person. Next on my list is something I'm I'm sad to say is awful because I think it's a great story that deserved to be told. I even know a couple people who were in it or had something to do with making it. And it's just a really abysmally bad film, which is a Netflix movie, A Futile and Stupid Gesture, <laughs> about uh, the National Lampoon. And uh, did you see it? Did you catch on Netflix? It's like 85 minutes long or something. It's an easy, you know, it, it, it's the sort of thing where you'd be like, oh, yeah, I can knock that off in the next hour and a half while I'm making dinner or whatever. I watched the first hour of it and then turned it off and watched the actual documentary. Dumb, loud, stupid, dead, dumb, loud, yeah. drunk, stupid, dead, something like that. Which is actually a pretty delightful documentary. Much better movie. It's too, I, I like David Wayne a lot. I like everybody. In, I mean, it's a really bad movie. <laughs> it's exactly what we used to sort of like made f- make fun of Netflix movies being right before your your Romas or your bird boxes or whatever it's like oh yeah look at this cheap dumb nobody else would want this this would never end up in a theater (laughs) it's just everything about it just seems sloppy Mm -hmm. Jurassic Park Fallen Kingdom which I you know hated to no one's surprise that I hated it that was that was Uh, maybe number six or seven on my list bad movie dumb movie Sisters Brothers sad that I hated it wanted to love it yeah like everything that it kind of stands for and I just thought it was a really mean-spirited really unpleasant film yeah and then uh, Unsane by one of my favorite filmmakers of all time, Steven Soderbergh. Oh, wow. Uh, which features the great Claire Foy. And it oh, is just, no. it's an almost unwatchable film. It is terrible. It was it was heralded as like Steven Soderbergh's making movies on uh, iPhones now, right? Tangerine style. It's god awful. Warned multiple friends about it. <laughs> they, they didn't listen to me. <laughs> they, they went and watched it. And then they came back and were like, that was worse than you said it was. <laughs> I'm like, yes, I warned you. Why did you bother sitting through it? It's a bad movie. Matt, I have one special award. Is that okay? Please. Yeah. Okay. I, I didn't even know what to what to call this. I think it's weirdest, most under the radar oddity film of the year. A movie called Destination Wedding. Oh, with Keanu Reeves and Winona Ryder. Yeah. Have you seen it? 
I have not, but maybe I'd need to. <laughs> uh, do, you, do you know sort of the gimmick in this film? Just that they don't like each other and they're on their way to a wedding and then they fall in love and uh, the rest is history? No. One of them's dead? No. The gimmick in this movie is that Winona Ryder and Keanu Reeves have literally the only two speaking parts in the film. Every scene is just them in the background of other scenes talking. It is like nasty. They're the most like cynical bad people, both of them. When it starts, you, you're like, what the fuck is this? This is so bad and not that funny. You kind of eventually get into the rhythm of it and they both mm-hmm. give pretty good performances given the script and so i don't know what to do with this movie i it's worth it's worth checking out because it's so fucking odd i absolutely will that sounds right up my alley (laughs) yeah it makes sense that it didn't go anywhere it's definitely was never going to be a heartwarming rom-com it's it's very much an anti-rom-com but uh yeah I, i had to i had to talk about it in some way shape or form we put it on like on a saturday morning sort of thoughtlessly and was really entranced by it All right. Well, that's my homework then for this week, which I, because that sounds fascinating. That sounds something like I would love to sit through because I love the both of them. And this sounds like the kind of train wreck I can get behind. Yes. Can I give you a little bit of homework? Because I feel like I can't believe this movie hasn't come up in this conversation yet, which I'm hopeful means you haven't seen it yet. And this is a movie that I feel like was one of the most talked about films of 2018. We never talked about it. I put it off for the longest time up until last night. I'm so blown away by it. Not that I loved it. Obviously, it didn't end up on any of these lists, but I'm just amazed that it exists, which is Mandy. Uh, We actually, I put it on the other night after being out in the town and... uh, only got through 20 minutes before yeah. I fell asleep. So That sounds about right. But I have, I, I am interested in seeing it. I I was going to see a screening of it, but uh, had to go out of town or something. I, I'm excited to watch it. It, it. It's shown up on a bizarre amount of like people's, I've seen it number one on some people's lists. It's an incredible, it's an unbelievable oddity. I'm actually really glad I didn't pay to see it in a movie theater. <laughs> I probably will at some point because someday I'll see it at a midnight screening or whatever. But yeah, um, but yeah please check it out. I will check out um, Destination wedding and we'll reconvene in the near future to talk about these two films that's enough for today matt this has been uh, a pleasure and so uh yeah this has been we like movies uh say goodbye to 2018 matt goodbye to 2018 matt